at first we were just like, we knew the benefits of cooking. It teaches him responsibility. He feels like he's a part of the family. We do love the food that he cooks from there. And what we didn't realize is all of the other things that were going to come along with it. His math skills are ridiculous now. Like he knows fractions. He knows how to add. He knows how to subtract basic multiplication as well, all from making recipes there. And I think the confidence that goes into getting your hands dirty and creating something and then feeding us with it, that was amazing. Yeah, no, we think this is a transformational experience, sending your kid to Little Kitchen Academy. It's transformational. A good kitchen produces good food, but a great kitchen brings people together. Welcome to Meet Me in the Kitchen, a podcast inspired by Little Kitchen Academy, exploring the key ingredients to a meaningful life and how they are changing lives from scratch. Here's my dad and your host, Scott Rintoul. If I say the name David Moscow, you might not be able to place him. But if I show you a picture of him as a 12-year-old, you'd likely recognize him immediately. David played the younger version of Josh Baskin in the 1988 hit movie Big, which famously starred Tom Hanks as the older version of that same character. It was a box office smash, it garnered multiple award nominations, and it also launched David's lengthy acting career. Now in his 40s, he's evolved into a producer, a writer, and a host, which led him to create a TV show about food, cooking, and travel named From Scratch. Now, given the name, perhaps David was destined to come into contact with Little Kitchen Academy, where the mission is changing lives from scratch. Recently, David agreed to meet me in the kitchen for a wide-ranging discussion about food, film, family, and far more. Just before we get to this compelling conversation, I want to extend a special offer to you as a Meet Me in the Kitchen listener. Little Kitchen Academy wants every child to experience what changing lives from scratch really means. So as a special gift to our listeners, you can currently save $25 off enrollment at any Little Kitchen Academy location. Just use the code INTHEKITCHEN at checkout and you'll instantly save $25 off enrollment at any LKA location. Again, the promo code to use is in the kitchen. It will only be available for a limited time, so be sure to enroll your child today. Okay, without further delay, it's a big conversation to say the least. Here is David Moscow. There are so many places we can begin, but I want to start with your show, and there will be many of our listeners who are not familiar with the show from scratch. So can you explain the concept to them right here off the hop? Yeah, I meet with a chef. It could be a home cook or a food truck or one of the top chefs on the planet. And they make me a meal. And then I hunt, gather, harvest every ingredient and come back and try and remake the meal with them. They show me how these ingredients work. And so aside from showcasing the chef at the beginning, I'm really looking at food producers and seeing how food makes it to our table. So you're watching the journey from the farm or the ocean to a plate. I think we've all been at a restaurant or at somebody's house, had a great meal and thought, oh, I wonder if I could reproduce that. Most of us take the off ramp and say, nope, no way. So what was the genesis for this project, David? 
and why did it become more than just a conversation? You know, I felt like recently America has felt very, the bonds are pulling apart. Feels very, you know, black or white. Everyone's at each other's throats. And I was thinking about, I've been an actor for a long time. I produce indie film. And I was trying to think of like, well, what's something that we could make that could bring people together? No matter what the political wins are around sort of migrant workers in the United States, everybody loves a margarita and everybody loves a taco. You know, tacos are the third most consumed food item. Margaritas are the number one cocktail. So let's go and follow the people who make these, you know, because I think once you sort of like show the hard work and expertise, whether it's a hemador in Jalisco or a subsistence corn farmer in Oaxaca, you know, it's undeniable, you know, the hard work and the expertise. So we were just going to do a documentary. And my agent was like, that's a terrible idea. He was like a doc that maybe goes to Sundance if you're lucky, that maybe gets bought by HBO and shows for like a month and then everybody kind of forgets about it. But if you do a different food group every week, now that's a television show. And then you're looking at sort of the sources of food. And we make it a little fun because I'm not an expert in any of this. I'm a foodie. I like to eat, but I don't know how things are made. And so I'm kind of a layman who's learning. I'm a surrogate for the audience. I fail a lot. So some chefs will, and this is part of the fun, will I succeed? They're asking for salmon and I fail and bring them a butternut squash. And then they have to roll with that as well. So yeah, it's been really amazing and it's clicked. So we're on Taste Made now. We started off on History Channel and A&E FYI. And then Tastemade came in with an offer we couldn't refuse. And we are now one of the most popular shows there because I think people are interested, whether it's from COVID, you know, I think that was a big thing. People got back together, sitting around the table, cooking with each other. A lot of people started gardens. People realized that they had become very distant from their food and that they're asking a lot of the same questions I am on the show. So what are you hoping that the audience takes away from each episode or the series as a whole? Well, you know, this distance from the food. When I first started, it really was about showing the community and how we all like people tend to think that they're on an island. Oh, I did this all by myself. But then when you realize it takes 68 people to make a slice of pizza, eh, you're not alone, my friend. If you, if you like pizza, if you want to eat pizza, you're connected to this broader web. And that was why we started it. But going through it, you know, you realize that food producers and food is at the center of these larger questions of like global climate change. How are farmers handling this? Overfishing, overconsumption, oceans are emptying out. What does the fact that we've become more distant from the food that we're eating do to our bodies, to the environment, to the animals that we're raising to eat, and to the people that we are paying to give us food? So all these questions you know, it's this big ball of twine. And when you start pulling the thread, you realize that all parts of our lives are related to this. And at the center of it is, sadly, will humanity survive? And our show is poppy and adventurous and a lot of fun. And we like to say that we hide the medicine and the ice cream, right? So there are larger things that we're talking about, but it's under the guise of me, like slipping and falling down a hill, harvesting bananas, right? Or trying to stay away from bees that are going to bring the rest of the hive with them. I watched that clip on your website. It's a great clip. You trying to go out and get some honey in a foreign land. Now, you mentioned that you travel a lot. You've been to South America on the show. You've been to Europe. You've been all over the globe. 
it's simply not confined to America. How do you select the locations? What interests you, right? Like we have a little group of people. We have a small production team. We found that like being maneuverable and flexible has helped us particularly. Again, we shot during COVID, so it was a lot easier to keep five people safe than 70 people. And also you get to tell different stories, right? Like when you show up with 70 people and uh, you got to stay in fancy hotels and like everybody who works on the show, they understand that they're in it for the adventure. So we are sometimes at the ends of the earth living out of a van. And I think it adds to like, we want to show humanity in its fullest light, right? And if you come sort of with this big posh film crew and expectations, you're going to lose some of that. I mean, the whole show is about me getting my hands dirty, literally in the dirt next to farmers. We just shot an episode in New Mexico where we were making green pepper, like a chili, which is a famous New Mexico, the green and the red chili. And then if you have them together, it's Christmas. And so we were harvesting on the border right next to Mexico, hatch chilies in 105 degree heat next to migrant workers who are, you know, busting their ass, you know, to feed us and to feed their families. And you just sit there and you're like, look at the incredible hard work that's going behind this, right? And I think if people walk away from it, the first thing will be, you know, meat is not grown on a tree and isn't wrapped in plastic, right? Like meat comes from an animal. So what does that mean, right? And we show animal slaughter, which often people don't really know about. A couple generations ago, you know, my mom her grandma in Montana would cut the chicken's head off and my mom would have to chase it, right? Or at least one generation ago, you saw animals hanging in the windows of butcher shops, right? So now it's completely different for us. And how can you ask a question of whether eating meat is good or bad or how much meat should I be eating if it's not even a discussion, if it's not even on the table? So that's one of the things I hope people can take away is they'll start asking questions about what they're consuming. And then with those questions comes discussion where like, okay, I think we should support small farmers, right? I think one of the things that happened is we did like a thumbnail sketch that I've eaten about 35,000 animals in my life, none of which I had killed up to the point of the show. And, and what a huge number to not even be thinking twice about it. That's two meals a day since five years old for about 40 years. Doesn't include like all you can eat buffets in Vegas or sandwiches piled high, you know, with Italian cold cuts. So that was an important discussion that I wanted to have. Like, okay, I'm going to go kill an animal and, and see how that changes. You know, will that affect what I'm eating? And it does. Like I eat a lot less meat. And if I do eat meat, you know, I'm not perfect. So I will stop it in and out and get a burger every now and then. But generally, you know, if I'm going to eat meat, I buy it from a place that treats their animals humanely and treats their workers humanely, pays them a good wage, which actually means that the meat is a little more expensive, which then means I eat less meat. So there's this kind of nice cycle that goes on where meat is now a special thing, which is what it was like a couple generations ago as well, or it's on the outside of my plate. It's not the centerpiece of the plate. And that goes along with all the foods that we're eating. You know, we have a tendency now that we're harvesting you know, we eat a lot more vegetables, right? Things that I poo-pooed before as not part of the meal are now like, oh my gosh, look at this incredible sweet potato. Look at these uh, asparagus or a big salad. 
One of the things that you mentioned on the website, and I imagine you go through in the book as well, is that when you talk about food sources, food systems, ethics, humanity, that there's a right way and that there's a lot of people doing good work. I don't think the general public knows or perhaps they don't take the time to investigate. So how does the average person find out or figure out what the correct way to consume is? That's a good question. And that's something that happens, especially when I give talks, people at the end of it will be like, all right, well, what do we do? Again, I'm not an expert. So I point people to experts. I think a good place to start is the slow food movement. There is probably a slow food org in your country, in your town, in your city, call them up. They will direct you to really fun, like farm dinners that you go out and you meet your farmer and you eat, or they'll just give you steps that you can take. And then aside from that, like, you know, we've been running into a lot of issues around oceans because we do go fishing a bunch and, you know, the stocks are collapsing. We were in the Mediterranean, which has never been a very fertile ocean. It doesn't have any major rivers that run into it. And it's had 28 countries that have been hammering it for over 10,000 years. And so it's pretty empty. Similar stuff is going on with the South China Sea. There was just this, I don't know if if you guys heard about it, but when Barbie came out, Vietnam decided they weren't going to show it because in the movie, there is a map of the South China Sea. It's China's map of the South China Sea, which basically China says, we own all of this. So there's actually this huge battle that's really about fish and somewhat shipping lanes, but mostly about fish. And there are eight countries. There's a territorial dispute. And the fish have dropped 90% in 50 years. So no matter what, they have to reach across these international divides and say, you think this is yours and I think it's mine. But if we want any fish here, we have to figure out how to manage this correctly. So here's another thing, a positive thing that comes out of that. That's another way that people can, particularly with fish, sustainably caught wild fish is a must. So bringing back the South China Sea, I did an episode in the Philippines. We were looking for fish. We couldn't find any. That's when we sort of pulled this thread and realized what was going on there. And something positive happened. The citizens of the EU voted that any of the fish that was going to be imported needed to be sustainably caught or raised. So the Philippines and a number of other countries in the South China Sea would like to sell to the EU. So now they had to change their fishing practices, which is a positive thing. Now, more and more, they're leaning towards sustainable fishing. It would be impossible for you to sit here during this conversation and list all of the things that you've learned over the course of this series. You've given us some of that knowledge already, but then there's the flip side. What do you now, at least at this point of your journey, consider the biggest failing of our global food system? So industrial food was an awesome thing. It fed poor people. I mean, reducing the costs around that is incalculable. But now we've gone too far or it's moved from feeding poor people to as much profit as possible, no matter what, right? And now overconsumption is ingrained, whether it's food or clothes or anything, is ingrained into our society now. They need us to just consume all the time to keep this house of cards up. And that is a problem. We're headed towards disaster. And I see it like food producers are on the front lines of all of this. We were just in New Mexico, you know, working in these fields where there are half of the 
peppers are left on the plants because American housewives don't want ugly peppers. And you're sitting there and you're like, this is, this can't go on, right? And the farmers acknowledge it. He didn't want to say it on camera, but he was like, this has to change. And then at the same time, because it's about profit now, 10 miles south of us in Mexico, they were paying workers $60 a week. And where we were in the US, they were paying them $20 an hour. The farmers on the US side are having trouble battling. It's almost like a race to the bottom with economics because how do you pay people 20 bucks an hour when just 10 miles away, people are getting 60 bucks a week. So there needs to be protections for farmers. There needs to be support for farmers. There needs to be a move towards smaller farms as well. Small farms have a tendency to, they're more economically beneficial for communities because the money spreads out as opposed to going straight up. They also, with smaller farms, you don't have as many issues with monoculture and pesticides. You know, obviously there is a place for that, but you also need a huge amount of room for a lot of different types of farming, whether it's agroforestry or permaculture or, you know, it can't just be huge fields of soy and corn and tons of pesticides because we are killing the soil, we're killing ourselves, we're killing the earth, you know, driving around the country and there are no bugs on my windshield, which is terrifying. When I was young and driving around in the same place, that windshield was filled, the grill was filled, and then you knew this is a healthy land. So yeah, there's warning signs all the time. It would be so pathetic if humanity just destroyed itself because we weren't willing to just acknowledge what's right there, right? If we just said, oh, we like the comfort that we're living in now. So that's a lot of what's going on. Tying food to the GDP. And that's a huge, I mean, how do you turn that boat around, right? Well, and when an individual thinks about that and pits him or herself against a massive corporation and the industrial food production, it becomes overwhelming. And it's really easy to get pessimistic. And yet throughout your series, you've met people doing good work. You've met people who understand. What gives you optimism about the future? Those people, those people are standing in the face of, you know, this tidal wave and they are there with their stone ground artisanal flour. <laughs> Just like, this is awesome. Like, wow. And I love, I mean, humanity is beautiful. Going and seeing what everyone's doing around the world and the thoughtfulness behind it and the incredible cultures and cuisines that have grown up through people trying to survive, right? And figuring out like, oh, if we cook this this way, it might not kill us and it actually might taste good, right? And that's like, you're looking at thousands of years, hundreds of thousands of years of kicking the tires and seeing like, okay, and now we're at this amazing place where everyone's getting to share across the world. Like I had great Thai food last night and this morning I went and had a French breakfast. So it's like, we get to see all of the colors and tastes that humanity has come up with. And I do think, you know, there's hope and hope is happiness. And I feel like the boat is turning, right? Like I think that just Europeans saying we need sustainable fish, that's huge. I think that 
people starting to talk about that it is important to know where our food comes from, right? That McDonald's puts salads on its menu. Like these are all steps in the right direction. It's only been 50 years or so of this industrialized food to the level that, you know, it's, it's hurting the planet. So my grandparents lived the way that we probably should go back to living, right? There's a story that came up while we were doing research on the book that the first factory farm was a mistake. It was a lady, I think, in Delaware in 1920 who was ordering chickens from a farmer's almanac, and she wanted to order like five, and she ordered 500, and they all arrived, and she was like, oh my gosh, what am I going to do? So she kept them in her house over the winter, and then she sold them, and she said, oh, wait a minute, this works. So that was how this all a mistake 100 years ago. So it's, it's probably time to start looking at these mistakes and fixing them. As you said earlier, you wrap the medicine in the ice cream. So there is an educational component and there's an ethical purpose to what you're doing with your production through an entertaining medium. I can see through the values that you have with your show and in doing research for this conversation, why things align very well with Little Kitchen Academy. But I'm very interested to know how you came in contact with Little Kitchen Academy and how that intersection became a relationship. So my son goes to Little Kitchen Academy. He travels with me on the show. At the moment, we're shooting seasons three and four, so we're like nomads. We're living out of Airbnbs. So he's milked goats, he's harvested eggs, he's fished for trout, uh, he's five. And he would see me cooking and was immediately interested in this. So we live in LA generally when we're not on the road and there is an LKA close to us. And we were blown away that this existed, especially for kids as young as him, because I think he started maybe when he was just turned four. So we thought at first we were just like, we knew the benefits of cooking. It teaches him responsibility. He feels like he's a part of the family. We do love the food that he cooks from there. And what we didn't realize is all of the other things that were going to come along with it. His math skills are ridiculous now. Like he knows fractions, he knows how to add, he knows how to subtract, basic multiplication as well, all from making recipes there. And I think the confidence that goes into getting your hands dirty and creating something and then feeding us with it, that was amazing. He has no fear. He steps up and talks to people, adults, tells them what he wants. I mean, especially at restaurants. <laughs> He'll tell you how things are made. We were both cooking bread. He's been going to the school for about a year. We were both cooking bread next to each other at the table in the kitchen. And at the end of it, my bread didn't rise very well. And his was beautiful. It was a very depressing day for me. He was very excited. And then he declared the other day that he's not a better cook than me, but he's a better cook than mom. And we all kind of looked at each other and we're like, yeah, that's true. <laughs> yeah, no, we think this is a transformational experience sending your kid to Little Kitchen Academy. It's transformational. And it's different than traveling around the world to learn some of the lessons that you're talking about. But as you said earlier, hey, you start with making a product and that's what you get out of every class at Little Kitchen Academy. But there's a math lesson you didn't know was coming. And there's a lesson in sustainability with the living food wall that's in there. There's a lesson in community with everybody eating around the table at the end. And I imagine all of those things are what inspired you to shoot an episode for your upcoming season with Little Kitchen Academy. Yeah, the school treats kids like people, seriously. It's not this like little fun thing. I mean, it is fun, obviously, but mm -hmm. it's not silly. And 
that's amazing. Like Harrison really responds to being treated like a person with their own feelings and thoughts and ideas. And he likes the actual responsibility there. And again, sitting at the end and breaking bread with people and discussing what just happened goes to the heart of what our show is, right? Like I think that's another thing that people can just do is start to sit at the table together and eat with one another. That's a big thing about slow food is slow food is not just about where you're getting your food from, but it's about cooking together and eating together because that lifestyle is better for us and better for the world. I agree with you wholeheartedly. Now, I know the episode will be coming out later on in the next season, but I've been told to ask you about the hat that you were wearing during the course of filming. What's the story behind this hat, David? So at the beginning of the episode, I'm in LA, I'm standing on a street and I go, oh, I need like the ultimate LA driving machine for this episode. And I snap my fingers and a Prius shows up behind me and I'm like, yeah, I guess that's right. But that wasn't what I was thinking about. And then I snap my fingers again and it's a Porsche. So I get in the Porsche and it's a convertible and I go, oh, I need a hat. And I snap my fingers and a big cowboy hat comes on. I'm like, this isn't the New Mexico episode. And I snap my fingers and it's just a ball cap. And that's the LA uniform in a convertible Porsche is just an old beat up ball cap. So that's the hat that I wear around in the LA episode. And it's actually fun. The opening of it is, I'm like, California has 87 Michelin-starred restaurants, 25 of which are in LA. There's a lot of diversity in this town, and the food is good. I would say LA is the best food city in America. Today, I'm meeting with a different kind of chef, one I've never worked with before. Truth be told, I'm a little intimidated. And then it cuts to my son and his chef whites, and he's like, hi, dad. And that's the beginning of the episode. I think it's going to be a lot of fun. And at the heart of this episode, I think we jumped off of, you know, the Little Kitchen Academy ethos. And it was really about harvesting, cooking, and eating in an urban environment and learning along the way. There's this amazing app called fallenfruit.org. And it's an app that you can find on your phone. And in it, this artist and his friends went and found all the fruit trees in people's yards that were leaning over into public spaces so that you can harvest fruit. And so I went around with a map of Venice, picking fruit off of people's trees that were in the public space. And he actually asked people, when you plant, plant on the edges of your yard because you're not going to eat 250 pounds of apples, but half the apples will be for you and half the apples will be for people on the street. So that was amazing. And I got to meet him, the designer, the artist, up at this park that he designed in the hills. Baldwin Hills is this hill between LAX and the rest of LA. People know it because it's like that famous place where there you see like in the desert, there are like oil pumps pumping right at the edge of Los Angeles with Beverly Hills Cop or something like that. So right next to there is a park that's really only accessible through a hike. And the park is an edible park. So they have lemon trees and orange trees and blackberry bushes and fig trees. And they give you a picker. If you've hiked there and you want to stop and harvest snack they give you a picker and you go around and pick this food with other people which is amazing and then he said that lemons are at the heart of one of the major civil rights movements in america and i was like what are you talking about so in the turn of the 19th century mexican migrant workers came into the u.s to harvest lemons and they brought their kids and they wanted their kids to go to school so they sued california to have the right to send their kids to school and California became the first state 
to say that that was constitutional. And California led the way for the rest of the nation. And so lemons mean that everybody here has the right to a public education, which holy smokes. And there were a number of other things you have to watch the show to hear more. But those type of things came out. And then we were gardening on rooftops with these like towers of food, so real urban farming. We actually went to Sacramento to harvest artisanal wheat and went to a really small mill to mill it into flour. We're making focaccia. It's going to be an awesome episode. I'm looking forward to it. And I'm really interested now to hear your answer to this next question, which we ask every single guest who comes on this podcast and everybody who works for Little Kitchen Academy gets asked this question as well. So David, what is the one ingredient that is always in your kitchen and why? Well, there's two answers. One is love. And that's because working with my family in the kitchen is such a bond. It is something that we do as much as we can. This is a we cook together, we eat together family. And then I think eggs. <laughs> eggs, we eat a lot of eggs. <laughs> you know, we're a very busy family and eggs are a really great meal that everybody likes. Even the little one who's 14 months now, you know, she eats some scrambled eggs. My boy can cook it so he can actually make breakfast every now and then or a snack. Yeah, eggs. I like it, I like it. And you just said there you're a family that eats together and you cook together. You mentioned your grandparents earlier on in this episode. Was it that way for you growing up as well in your own family, that you were a family that cooked together and ate together? Is that where your connectivity to food began? You know, we were a family that cooked together. At least my mom and I cooked together. We were not a family that ate together. I think if we ate together once a week, that was a big deal. My dad is a workaholic. <laughs> My dad's a workaholic, my mom's a workaholic, my brother's a workaholic. I started acting when I was young, so I imagine I'm a workaholic. And we would all grab our plates and like be off in our own you know, worlds. But my wife comes from a family that eats together and she brought that into our relationship and what a gift, you know. Her family's awesome. We moved in with them during the pandemic. They have about five acres because we wanted our kids to have running around space and they have a big garden and Harrison started growing food there. And every day, you know, I think this was this way for a lot of people. When it came time to cook, that was like the high point of the day, right? There's nothing left on Netflix that we've seen. Let's cook something interesting. Let's make bread. Let's see if we can do sourdough for the first time. I was ordering all kinds of random, like unique potatoes off of the internet. And then they'd arrive and we'd be like, what are we going to do with this? So yeah, that's a gift that my wife brought into the household, which is just gold. Yeah. I want to get to both sides of that, the family side and the work side. The family side, you mentioned your father is a workaholic. He's an educator. He's a writer on the show. He's a writer of your book as well, From Scratch. He's also the co-executive director of Ethics in Education. He has his own podcast, which he's a host on, and it's called The Ethical Schools Podcast. As an educator, what influence has your father had on your approach to the show and your book from scratch. You know, I was an actor for a long time and I was sort of like the black sheep of my family. Everybody is like, you know, community organizers, activists, nurses, teachers, like, you know, trying to help the world is really something that they're involved in. And as an actor, I always kind of was wondering like, is this it, right? Like in a lot of ways, it's a vain profession and popularity contest. And you're always looking for something deeper there. You know, at some point it's a job, which is great. And it pays the bills and everybody has to do a job and it's not a bad job. But I was always sort of like, what more can I do? Because I had these people I was looking up to and 
when this idea came around, it was like, aha, here's a way I can marry everything that I've been learning for the past 25 years, how to run a production, how to be on camera, like all the connections I'd made. And here I can do my part in a way and give the microphone to people who don't often get to say their thoughts on a subject. So going up and talking to a farmer, a farm worker, a fisherman, a fisher person, and letting them get to talk to millions of people. I mean, Tastemade has 300 million subscribers and, and the show has been watched by 60 million people at this point, which is more than I could have ever dreamed. And yet they get to hear from the people themselves what it's like. So yeah, at the heart of it, when we write, my dad is really, really academic. And so it's great because I know that I'm telling the truth. I trust him and we are going to tell the truth. And then my skill is also to make it tasty, right? So like you can't just be super dry. So it's a really neat combination. If it's late one night and I need to wake up early in the morning and I have to do this five minute monologue about the state of farms, I can call him and be like, hey, will you give me this minute and a half so that I can talk to camera with it? And I know I'm going to, you know, with some tweaks, it's going to be really, really great. You mentioned the number of people who have watched from scratch. Now, that's not your oldest work, of course. And you mentioned starting very young. I don't know if I set an unofficial record by waiting this long to ask you about your acting success. You did. Look at you. Good job. <laughs> well, most of our audience will have seen the movie Big, and you played younger Tom Hanks, the young Josh Baskin character in that film. How did that success at such an early age, I believe you were 12 when you made that movie, how did it change your life? Oh, my goodness. I was just like a, a little ruffian from the Bronx and then got into acting. There was a movie called Five Corners, which was Jodie Foster and John Turturro. It was an open casting call at the local community college. They were looking for an 11-year-old kid from the Bronx. I went in. They liked me. They gave my name to an agent. My parents actually passed. They said, no, he's not going to do that movie because we were so out of Hollywood. It was hilarious. And then... My second audition was for this movie called Big. At the time, it was Robert De Niro playing the Hanks part. And so I was not going out for the young Robert De Niro. I was going out for the best friend. And that came and went. And about six months later, we got a call. Penny was like, give me that kid from the Bronx. She's from the Bronx as well. And he looks like Tom. So then, uh, then they said, do you want to do it? And we were like, sure. And then, you know, <laughs> it's a crazy honor and super luck to land a movie like that, you know, like to land, I don't think I'm saying incorrectly, like a classic, right? And for that to really be the first thing that you do creates crazy expectations of every movie that you do after that, but also means you don't stop working until you decide you want to stop working, right? Like there would always be, even during like droughts, I would like go in and sit in a room and I hadn't done anything in a year and, and then a director would be half paying attention to my audition and they'd be looking down and I'd get to the bar. Wait, what? Who? Wait, you? You're, oh my gosh. And then it's a whole new audition, right? Yeah. And even today I'll be on the subway and someone's staring at me, nodding, smiling. They don't know where they know me from. They think we went to camp together, but I always get good smiles. I get free coffee sometimes. It's a nice way to live, you know? And you've been behind the curtain, the curtain that most people only hear about or read about. And I'm wondering how you believe you've been able to stay, at least in my opinion, just through this conversation, 
so grounded through all of that? The business is hard. Like the world sees the high points, but if you do one job, if you work for a month and a half in a year, you are super successful. That's a movie a year or a TV show a year. And what you don't understand is that for 11 months, you are pounding the pavements, getting rejected. I think one of the things it's given me is thick skin, right? Like I really pay no attention to people's judgment on me. And at this point, it's super hilarious, right? Like even going into a battle, you go and you mess it up in front of Woody Allen, you walk out and you're just like, that was insane, horrible, smiling, laughing, like what the heck, right? So that is a gift that the business is, has given me. The idea that you fall, you dust yourself off, you try again, you fall, you dust yourself off. There is one thing I think the media likes to paint child actors as, you know, most of them go south. Most of them don't make it. Most of them, it's a disaster. And I actually don't think that's true. I think that in all levels of society, some people don't make it. Some people, it doesn't work out. And I think the same amount of people, I think it's equal. I think that, you know, because a lot of the people I grew up with are actually super successful. You know, the group that I ran around with when I was younger are all, most of them are still working. I mean, Neil Patrick Harris is like an icon at this point and everybody else is on a TV show and, you know, they're doing very well. I would say that it is important for all young aspiring artists, actors, whatever you want to be, that because the business is so hard, it's important to have another interest. And whether that means when you go to college, you don't take theater necessarily, you become an engineer, right? And that way, two things occur. One is you have a wider range of interests that lend itself to being an actor, to the art. But also, when there are tough times, it's not like the end of the world if you haven't worked in a while, right? Because that stress adds to the stress, and then it becomes this cycle. You have a tendency to find that a lot of actors today come from wealthy families, or you know, they talk about this sort of like Hollywood stars' kids end up becoming stars as well. And I think it's less about sort of the relationships, though it is a little bit about that, but more about the fact that these kids don't have to worry about paying the bills, and they're not working, you know, two shifts at a restaurant and trying to study their lines at the same time. So if there is a way to make a good living and do this on the side or, or a way to make a good living writing grants and then acting, do that. Because I think it's easier. There was some story. Oh, there was a New Yorker article a few years ago about an art school that takes their seniors and sends them to go live with some of the artists who have already graduated. And that senior will be sleeping on a sleeping bag on the floor of the studio apartment that this artist is living in while they are washing dishes in the back of a restaurant because that is what it means to be an artist, right? Like, so recognize what you're getting into. Yeah. And it can be difficult in a lot of professions, but especially one that's public facing like you chose and that chose you, I suppose, to not become that character that the late Philip Seymour Hoffman portrays in Along Came Polly, the one who's so wrapped up in his self and his self-identity that the child star has to continue to be the star. Did you always have that ability to separate what you did from who you are? And if so, 
Where does that come from? I don't know. I mean, no. I think that um, it's always a battle, but that's your job. Like the acting side, you do for free. Like that's a blast, right? The other stuff you deal with is what you get paid for. And that is sort of like the ups and downs, trying to leave room for other people, some air in the room, you know, for friends and family, because the world won't. Like you'll go into a restaurant or a party and everybody will talk to you and then your friends or your little brother will be sort of in a big shadow and and that's hard especially not coming from a family that knew anything about this like just trying to figure out sort of your place a realistic place yeah i think that battling the ups and downs and the highs and lows was my main struggle you know i, I worked consistently that part was wonderful and because of early success, like financially, I was in an okay place. And so it really was like, okay, you haven't worked for a year and a half or somebody got a part that you really wanted. And, you know, did you reach your peak at age 12? Did you reach your peak at age 16? Did you reach your peak at like, you know, every five years you'd get a role, which sort of would reset the clock a little bit, but then you were always like, is this it? Right. And then people do ask, how does it feel to be young Josh and that nothing has been that big since then? And, you know, I think they miss the point of life, right? There's a big life that goes on behind that. Josh was obviously an amazing part of it and has allowed me to create a show that I can now go around the world and teach people about food cultures, right? Yeah, that wouldn't have happened without Josh Baskin or David Jacobs from Newsies or all these other parts of me. You provided me the perfect segue to wrap this up because that's exactly where I wanted to go. We don't need to run down your entire IMDb page, but as I mentioned earlier, not only are you an actor, you're a creator, you're a producer, you've written a number of things you've done in film. Now you're very focused on the show from scratch and the book that's now out. How fulfilling has this project been relative to the rest of your career? Well, this is, this is it. This is the funnest time I've ever had in my life. Like to be in utter control as an actor, you're always waiting for phone calls, your agents, your managers, some casting director. When am I going to get an audition? what they say? Am I okay? There's a lot of like, you know, pressure here. I am writing it, putting together the team, negotiating the deals. It's almost as if the 35 years in the business has come to a head and I'm using all of the talent and tools that I've built over time to do something freaking awesome. <laughs> it's like, okay, well, where do we want to go next week? Right? Like I love Indian food, Ethiopian food. Like, it's just like, and then you'll be sitting at dinner with somebody and you'll be like, yeah, what's your favorite restaurant? They, they just got back from Italy. Oh, what, what restaurant did you really like there? And they're like this and this. And you're like, oh, that's interesting. Tell me more about that. And you know, this chef, can you connect us? And then it just becomes like this really amazing Easter egg hunt around the world. And you're trying to find sort of the funnest adventures and interesting foods that you can eat. You're doing a fabulous job of it. It's a great concept and you're pulling it off. And I'm really happy for your success. And just like in your series, David, food has brought us together here in a way today. It's been a pleasure meeting you. Thank you very much for doing this, and I look forward to seeing the Little Kitchen Academy episode on the next season of From Scratch. It's going to be a great one. Thank you. Meet Me in the Kitchen is curated and produced by Toolkit Content. You can find more information about Little Kitchen Academy, including classes, 
locations, employment, and franchise opportunities at littlekitchenacademy.com. What's the one ingredient that's always in your kitchen? 